Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Strong focus on what I want. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 172, Spider-Man 2. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, all of you brand new listeners to this podcast, welcome back, regular returning listeners, thank you for being here, thank you for choosing this podcast. Basically, no matter how you found this podcast, I'm so happy to have you here because this episode is going to be the history and legacy of Spider-Man 2. And this episode has been a reasonably long time coming. I did Spider-Man only a few months ago on this podcast, and I've been itching to re-watch and look into the history and legacy of Spider-Man 2. But before I go into all of that, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who listened to the previous August episode that I did in August. Now, it was something a little bit different for this podcast to have a month's worth of guests, but it basically meant that I could have a little time to myself, have a little bit of time off. I only did very minimal podcast work in August, and that actually turned out to be really, well, advantageous for me because I ended up getting a new addition to my little family. 
I got a kitten. Her name is Evie and she is just a bundle of crazy, sleuthy fun. She's not here right now. She's in the other room, but I need to obviously get her used to me doing the podcast and everything that goes into the podcast. But it was really nice to spend a few weeks with her, just getting her used to me and to this house and basically instead of working on the podcast all the time. So it ended up being really, really good for me to have that time off. And so I really can't thank Gally, Andy, Jack, Drew and Matt enough for giving up their time and coming on the podcast to talk about the wide variety of movies that they did come on to talk about. So we had Gally coming on for Basic Instinct, Andy for Dogma, Jack for Ex Machina and Drew and Matt on Twins. And as of this episode's general release, yesterday, which is Wednesday, if you're listening to the general release episode, I released annual birthday episodes. So as of releasing this episode, it was my birthday yesterday. And previous birthday episodes have been cinematic classics like The Iron Giant and Jurassic Park and Labyrinth. And these are all movies that have been really special to me personally. And so what I did was this year I followed them up with another cinematic classic, the classic that is the superior Grease, Grease 2. <laughs> and yeah, I had a lot of fun actually on that episode because I really genuinely do prefer Grease 2 to Grease. But moving away from August and everything that happened in August, we are now in September and we've got a good theme month here on this podcast. For some reason, the theme months seem to do really well. So I'm basically repeating what I did last September and doing another round of Sequel Timber, which is sequels to movies I've already covered on the podcast. Grease 2 was kind of the unofficial start to that, but that's unofficial for two reasons, because I've never covered Grease, and also that episode came out in August, so it kind of doesn't count. But you have plenty to look forward to. These are mostly all sequels to movies that I only actually covered a few months ago, so have a look back to the stuff that I covered a few months ago, maybe even like a month or so ago. And what could be the sequels that are coming? As There's so many great ones, I can't even tell you. So many great ones that I actually couldn't fit them all in. So I had to take <laughs> at least one out of the roster and it was heartbreaking. It's really tough to make those decisions when you do theme months, guys. But without further ado, with great power, comes a podcast about a great sequel. Here's the trailer for Spider-Man 2. I believe there's a hero in all of us. Gives us strength, makes us noble. Even though sometimes we have to give up the thing we want the most. Parker! Where you been? Looking for you all morning. You're late. Always late. You're fired. Look at your paper. Your grades have been declining. You always appear exhausted. <laughs> I know, I'm trying. So where you been, pal? You don't return my calls. I've been kind of busy. Taking pictures of your friend. Spider-Man killed my father. No matter what I do. Do you love me or not? No matter how hard I try. I want Spider-Man dead. It's the ones I love who will always be the ones who pay. I can't keep thinking about you. I'm getting married. I want a life of my own. I'm Spider-Man. No more. Different. I let things get in the way before. There was something I thought I had to do. I don't have to. I like seeing you tonight, Peter. Now on to the main event. 
Octavius is gonna put Oscorp on the map in a way my father never even dreamed of. Crazy scientist turns himself into some kind of a monster. Four mechanical arms welded right onto his body. You take Spider-Man's pictures. Where is he? He's taking me off your loyalty to Spider-Man and not your best friend. Bring ah! Spider-Man to me. How do I find him? Peter Parker. Find Spider-Man, or I'll peel the flesh off her bones. There are bigger things happening here than me and you. after becoming Spider-Man, Peter Parker is struggling to find balance in his life as the increasing burden of being a superhero gets in the way of his relationship with his studies, job, friends, family and the woman he loves. Once the stress begins to affect his powers, he decides he is Spider-Man no more. This comes at a bad time since the brilliant scientist Dr. Otto Octavius is caught in a freak lab accident that not only kills his wife, but also leaves four mechanical tentacles permanently attached to him. Going insane, he becomes the evil Dr. Octopus and is determined to retry the failed experiment on a much bigger scale. With the city in danger and his relationship with Mary Jane in doubt, Peter must become Spider-Man once more to save the city from Doc Ock. Let us run through the cast of this movie. Tobin Maguire returns as Peter Parker, aka Spider-Man. Kirsten Dunst as Mary Jane Watson, James Franco as Harry Osborne, Alfred Molina as Dr. Otto Octavius, aka Doc Ock, Rosemary Harris as May Parker, Donna Murphy as Rosie Octavius, J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. Notable cameos in this movie from Bruce Campbell, of course, as the theatre usher, Willem Dafoe as Green Goblin, Elizabeth Banks as Betty Brandt, John McHale as Mr. Jax, the bank teller. Daniel Day Kim turns up as well as Raymond, Otto Octavius' assistant. Emily Deschanel as the receptionist who won't pay for pizza. John Landis as one of the doctors who tries to operate on Otto Octavius. And of course, the one and only Stan Lee who saves a woman from falling debris. Spider-Man 2 has a screenplay by Alvin Sargent. Story by Alfred Goff, Miles Millar and Michael Chabon is directed by Sam Raimi and based on Spider-Man by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. So last month, on the 10th of August 2022, Spider-Man celebrated his 60th birthday. And in June 2004, 18 years ago, Spider-Man 2 premiered. In the previous episode of Spider-Man, I talked about his comic book history. So let's run through a quick previously on but you should definitely go back and listen to episode 155 because there's so much about Spider-Man's history. So basically, Stan Lee wanted to create a new comic book character that teenagers could relate to after the success of the Fantastic Four. He didn't want a traditional name ending in boy and chose Spider-Man to differentiate the character from Superman 
and give him a name that he could grow into. Stanley had to get approval from Marvel publisher Martin Goodman to use the character, and Goodman had several objections. Lee would push him into agreeing that Spider-Man could debut in Amazing Adult Fantasy number 15, which would actually be the final issue of that comic, and the final issue would be retitled Amazing Fantasy. This was the only way that Goodman would accept Lee's new character, debuting him in a soon-to-be-cancelled comic, and that comic was released on the 10th of August 1962. So Spider-Man's debut in his self-titled comic, The Amazing Spider-Man, that came out a few months after his debut. Goodman had examined The Amazing Fantasy's final issue sales numbers and was surprised to discover that it was one of the best-selling comics that they'd ever done. So a solo Spider-Man publication was put together and this was launched in March 1963. Issue number one introduced J. Jonah Jameson, introduced the supervillain The Chameleon, as well as Spider-Man's first encounter with the Fantastic Four. His most famous antagonists, Dr. Octopus and Green Goblin, would be introduced in later issues. Doc Ock would be introduced in issue three and the Green Goblin in issue 14. In episode 155, I also go into the changes to the Comics Code Authority rules and the part that Spider-Man played in those changes, as well as Spider-Man across TV and film, up to the first Sam Raimi movie in 2002. And basically, how that movie not only came to be, there are several iterations, have a listen to my feature, Coleman Cannon, Carol Poe and Columbia, and how James Cameron shaped Spider-Man as we know it, but also how Spider-Man changed the cinematic landscape and Sony's landmark deal with Marvel on the rights for the character, and basically the fact they had to keep bringing out movies or they would lose those rights. That's why we kept getting Spider-Man movies. Also in that episode, I mentioned Jake Gyllenhaal and also mentioned I would come back to him in this episode. So I will be coming back very shortly to Jake Gyllenhaal. Work on Spider-Man 2 started in earnest immediately after finishing Spider-Man, which came out in cinemas in May of 2002. But even before Spider-Man's release, Sony had hired Alfred Goff and Miles Millar most well-known for writing Smallville, to write the sequel to Spider-Man, then titled The Amazing Spider-Man, not to be confused with the Andrew Garfield 2012 reboot. The previous movie's writer, David Cope, was added a month later, and he came up with his own version of the script, which was then rewritten by himself, Goff and Millar. Then a few months later, Cope, Goff and Millar were dropped and replaced by Michael Chabon, Although there were rumours of two villains, Dr. Octopus and the Lizard, Doc Ock was the favourite choice, especially after he was included in Cope's original script for Spider-Man, but dropped, along with Electro, in favour of Green Goblin. Michael Chabon's original script for Spider-Man 2 exists on the internet. In it, Otto Octavius doesn't have his beloved wife Rosie. He's actually a single man who becomes interested in and starts dating Mary Jane. Harry, still reading from the death of his father, puts a $10 million bounty on Spider-Man's head, so citizens of New York start attacking him to win the money. Peter's powers fade, not for any PTSD-based reason, but because Otto Octavius, who created the genetically altered spider which bites Peter, reverse engineers a cure and gives him a DNA reversing chip, which Peter injects into himself and slowly loses his powers. Meanwhile, Octavius's mechanical arms give him endorphins to counteract the pain of wearing them, and he uses the arms to beat some guys up, horrifying MJ. Doc Ock makes a deal with Harry to capture Spider-Man, and Spider-Man has to cut open his own arm and dig the chip out to regain his powers. Along with screenwriter Alvin Sargent, 
Rayleigh read through the earlier manuscripts by Goth, Millar, Cope and Chabon and chose the parts that he liked. The plot of the finished film takes inspiration from Doc Ock's debut in 1963, the If This Be My Destiny storyline from The Amazing Spider-Man issues 31 to 33 between 1965 to 1966, which notably introduces supporting characters Harry Osborn and Gwen Stacy. Spider-Man's nemesis, Dr. Octopus, temporarily assumes the master planner alias and Spider-Man is pinned under heavy machinery, which he lifts after gathering enough willpower through thoughts of his family. The most obvious inspiration for Spider-Man 2's story was Spider-Man No More, a 1967 storyline from The Amazing Spider-Man issues 50 to 52. Spider-Man No More's chief antagonist in the comics was Kingpin in his debut, but it mostly introduces the concept of Peter hanging up his hero days and his suit being taken out of the bin and given to J. Jonah Jameson, which would birth one of the greatest deleted scenes in cinematic history of J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson wearing the Spider-Man suit. Seriously, if you've not seen it, go on YouTube. It's delightful. Mostly, it was important for this movie, unlike its predecessor, to give Spider-Man a more human story. This is Peter's story, rather than Spider-Man. And also, unlike Spider-Man, Peter would know who he was up against straight away with Dr. Otto Octavius, an acclaimed scientist Peter himself respects. This movie has the gusto to not be about what we think it should be, and in many ways, this is something Spider-Man 3 kind of fell foul of. Both Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst had signed up to three-picture deals and as I mentioned in the last episode on Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire almost didn't get the role originally because Jake Gyllenhaal was also up for the part. Obviously, Tobey Maguire did get the role, but before Maguire returned for the Spider-Man sequel, he would film Seabiscuit and a pre-existing back condition flared up, causing him extreme pain and discomfort. So when it came to casting the sequel, it was suggested that maybe Maguire wouldn't be able to play Peter Parker. Jake Gyllenhaal resembled Maguire so much that discussions started to be had on recasting Peter Parker, just in case Maguire couldn't do it. Obviously, they were thinking of what was best for the sequel, but also for Maguire's health. No one wanted him to injure himself more severely. Crisis talks were had, and a series of physical tests under the supervision of medical professionals were performed to ensure Maguire was fit and able to proceed. There are a few conflicting reports that he was fired from the role for inappropriate attitude, and additionally assisted in being rehired by enlisting the help of his future father-in-law, Ronald Mayer, the head of Universal, who allegedly lobbied on Maguire's behalf. In interviews, Maguire would deny being fired and insist it was all a misunderstanding and that Gyllenhaal was never going to replace him. Gyllenhaal, for his part, admits there were talks and that he was up for the role originally, but he never thought he would replace Maguire for Spider-Man 2. Quote, the truth of the matter is, in the end, Maguire is Spider-Man. There's so many roles in my career where I was up against another actor or something happened that possibly could have happened but didn't happen, but maybe it would have. Eventually, my belief is when an actor's played a character, particularly in a movie, the character's theirs, and that's that. But yeah, he hurt himself and there was talk, and there were a slew of actors possibly up for the part, and I was one of them, unquote. Gyllenhaal would obviously go on to be cast as Mysterio for Spider-Man Far From Home, which he's great in, by the way, so I'm kind of glad he never got the Spider-Man role. Sam Raimi wanted a character actor for the role of Otto Octavius and auditioned Ed Harris, Christopher Walken and Chris Cooper, as well as Alfred Molina. 
At the time, Melina was a SAG and BAFTA-nominated actor for his role in Frida. And so, well, clearly, I don't need to tell you, he got the role. And then there's also an alleged casting that I happened to find on the internet. Now, I couldn't really corroborate this. This was only from one source. And normally I don't include stuff that's just from one source. However, I found on the internet that there was a casting of the character of Felicia Hardy, a.k.a. Black Cat, and that this was cast with an actress called Brooke Adams. Now, the character wouldn't be included in the final film. She would actually appear in The Amazing Spider-Man 2 with Felicity Jones in the role. And from this one website that I found, reportedly the character was cast, but then shortly after the role was removed from the script and so Brooke Adams never did any filming and basically never did anything for this movie. But it's interesting that the character of Black Cat was allegedly cast and then removed. Beginning on April 12th, 2003, filming took place on over 100 sets and locations throughout New York City and the surrounding region, such as Columbia University, which served as a stand-in for the fictional Empire University, with much of the later filming also taking place at Sony Sound Stages in Los Angeles. The start of filming was originally slated for January 2003, but it was delayed to give Tony Maguire a little more time to finish up on Seabiscuit, and for the many pre-production tasks that needed to be completed, such as additional casting and set building, the production team acquired a train of 2,200 series Chicago L cars and set up 16 cameras to capture Spider-Man and Doc Ock's rail brawl in the background. Only 150 of these trains were ever built and were in service for 44 years until August 2013. Sam Raimi and his crew travelled to Chicago in November of 2002 to shoot several scenes involving the L trains that couldn't have been done in New York City. Production in New York City wrapped on the 30th of May 2003 with the rest of the filming moving to sets in Los Angeles. Tobey Maguire enjoyed performing many of his stunts after the initial scare caused by his back issues. He and Raimi even made fun of it by having Spider-Man say, my back, my back, as he attempts to regain his powers. Even Rosemary Harris participated in stunts and she eliminated the need for her stunt double. She loved doing her own stunts. Bear in mind, she was 76 years old at the time and I was today years old when I found out that her daughter is Jennifer Airely of 1995 Pride of Prejudice Lizzie Bennett fame. In contrast, Alfred Molina declined to perform his own stunts out of respect for the work of trained professionals but it didn't mean he wasn't duped into performing them for entertainment purposes. Now, I don't know what exactly that means, but there are several sources on the internet that say that the stunt performers made him do stuff just to make them laugh. So, Alfred Molina's a funny guy, so I can imagine that he probably did make the cast and crew laugh quite a lot. On the original Spider-Man episode, I mentioned the Spider-Cam. And despite its name, it wasn't created for that movie. And it was actually only used once in the final shot. But for Spider-Man 2, it was utilised throughout filming. It could undertake shot lengths of a little over 2,400 foot in New York or 3,200 foot in Los Angeles. The Spider-Cam camera system allowed filmmakers to express more of Spider-Man's point of view. At times, the Spider-Cam dropped 50 floors. It tracked stunt doubles and the CG Spider-Man and filmed at six frames per second for some scenes to allow for a faster replay, which would heighten the impression of speed. Shots with the Spider-Cam were pre-planned in computer recreations of cities, 
and motion control was used to manage the camera's movement, which made these shots incredibly affordable to do. And Spider-Man 2, as I'm going to come to later, was awarded a prestigious Oscar for visual effects. But it remains the only Marvel movie to ever be awarded such an honour still to this day. Other movies have been nominated for visual effects. Iron Man, Iron Man 2, The Avengers, Iron Man 3, Captain America the Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, X-Men Days of Future Past. That's a rare three nominations in one year in 2014 for Marvel projects there. Doctor Strange, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Avengers Endgame. Shang-Chi and Spider-Man No Way Home were all nominated over the years, but none of these have taken the award home except Spider-Man 2. And the quality of these visual effects, 18 years later, it's clear why this won the award because these effects, they still look fantastic to this very day. They're not perfect, to be sure, because they are 18-year-old effects, but still so very impressive. And that's because so much of this movie is practical wherever it can be. This is thanks to visual effects master John Dykstra, a man who started his career working on none other than Star Wars in 1977. Dykstra developed his own motion control camera called Dykstra Flex for Star Wars' groundbreaking visual effects. This earned him a scientific and engineering award from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, as well as his first Best Special Effects Oscar, aged 30. But I'm going to save all that for a future Star Wars episode. John Dykstra had also worked on Spider-Man, but Spider-Man 2 presented new challenges, as well as the advancement of CG effects. The mantra of the visual effects team was simple. The second movie's poorest shot should look as good as the first movie's best shot. And this time around, the VFX budget had been increased to $65 million purely for visual effects. As in the first movie, the team went to New York and surveyed actual buildings, digitally photographing them during the right times of day to get the light on them from every angle. The buildings were then textured and the pipeline for the creation of those CG buildings was upgraded from the first movie. The new digital Spider-Man himself presented a new challenge too because his suit had been slightly upgraded and at the time computer-generating cloth wasn't easy. James Aitchison, the film's costume designer, made minor adjustments to Spider-Man's costume the muscular suit underneath was cut into pieces to offer a better sensation of movement and the colours were made richer and bolder. The helmet Tobey Maguire wore underneath his mask was also upgraded, adding a false jaw for better movement and a magnetic eyepiece that was easier to remove. Several cloth simulations were blended together to make the CG suit look as real as possible and the CG Spider-Man character was restructured, given better musculature and a new skeleton. The idea being to make the digital Spider-Man look indistinguishable from Tobey Maguire in suit. The digital Spidey was also given, for the first time, digital human-looking skin. Nothing was recycled from the first movie from the point that the system switched from Irix to Linux and you couldn't convert the data. Only a small amount of motion capture was used for Spider-Man in Spider-Man 2 and no motion capture was used for Doc Ock because in the sense of scale, Spider-Man had digitised New York and Spider-Man himself in the previous movie. So none of this was really new for the team. Green Goblin, as an antagonist, he'd mainly just flown around on a board. But Doc Ock was completely new. He had four individual sentient tentacles. And if you think about nature, there are no sextupital beings existing in the natural world. So there was nothing really to go off for how Dr Octopus would move. Sam Raimi wanted the tentacles to be sentient, to have individual personalities 
as well as be mechanical devices, for Doc Ock himself to be at their will once his inhibitor chip is broken. The design had to be somewhat anthropomorphic to achieve that. John Dykstra worked with costume designer James Akerson and production designer Neil Spisak to design tentacles that could be puppeteered as well as digitally created. Both the actual tentacles and the designs for the CG versions of the puppets were made side by side by the animators and animation director Anthony Lamolinara of Sony Imageworks to ensure that they integrated features into them that could work for the animation. When it came to developing the personalities of these tentacles, the animators had to meet a very stringent set of requirements. EdgeFX were commissioned to make a corset, a metal and rubber girdle, a rubber spine and four eight-foot-long foam rubber tentacles that weighed 100 pounds. One puppeteer sat on a chair and manipulated each of the death flowers, which were the names of the claws on each tentacle. Four people were in charge of each tentacle arm and they practiced every scene with Melina to ensure they could move the tentacles naturally as though they were responding to Octavius's muscle movements. Melina named his tentacles Larry, Harry, Moe and Flo. Flo performed the delicate operations like lighting his cigar. For close-ups, the tentacles were puppets for when Doc Ock is carrying the tentacles. But for wide shots or scenes where the tentacles are carrying him, Alfred Molina was strapped into a harness and CG tentacles were added in post-production. A lot of scenes would have both puppets and CG tentacles in the same shot and any CG tentacles had to react to light in exactly the same way as the real tentacles and also they had to look like they were being controlled, firstly by Doc Ock and secondly as their own sentient beings. The sequences with the tentacle movements were choreographed by Eric Hayden. And when we're talking about a scene in which the CG and the practical effects blend perfectly together, this is never more clear than in the operation scene. And this is a proper Sam Raimi, Evil Dead homage, as well as a seamless blend between CG and practical effects. And one of the many standout scenes in this movie as the movie goes full horror movie and proves how sentient and self-preserving Doc Ock's tentacles actually are. The fact Raimi chose to light this scene with cold, clinical, bright white hospital lighting, it switches between wide shots, POVs and close-ups, and the blood-curdling screams of the doctors into situations with complete darkness, complete with trademark chainsaw, culminating in Otto waking up and fully submitting to his tentacle overlords. This scene is also absent of any music. There's a similar style of scene in Raimi's Doctor Strange sequel, similarly chilling and visually terrifying. Ironically, this movie also name drops Doctor Strange. Superheroes, their villains and situations are often rooted in horror scenarios and what makes this scene work, as all great horror should, is the stuff it doesn't show. You see the claw marks as a Doctor is dragged into the darkness, but what happens to her is left to your imagination. I could honestly talk about that scene forever because it's genuinely one of my favourite scenes in probably any superhero movie ever. But I feel like I need to talk about some of the other effects in this movie. Scale miniatures were used for the climactic pier scene at the end of the movie. They built a miniature pier. They also had the inclusion of CG water. That actually came about at the last minute. And a lot of the effects in this movie were pretty last minute, including the iconic train sequence which mixed the CG characters of Spider-Man and Doc Ock with a genuine train carriage shot on a green screen. Over 100 visual effects are in this scene alone. A real buckled train carriage was used for the scene in which Peter struggles with all his might to stop the carriage. 
which culminates in not only Peter's identity being revealed by his heroics, but also the regular New Yorkers pulling together to protect their hero. A scene that starts with the iconic shot of Spider-Man swinging through the city, only to find that it's a reflection in Doc Ock's eyes. And seriously, there are so many comic book looking shots in this movie. But this scene is why Peter needs to be Spider-Man. It validates his decision to keep going. Even though the film primarily uses Super 35, 16 large format cameras are brought in to shoot the exterior of the subway train scene. To cover every angle of the train, all six Panavision Super 65mm cameras were brought in and used for the first time since Far and Away in 1992, together with an eight Perth iWorks camera, four Arri 435 cameras and eight VistaVision cameras, with an array of three joined up to create a large dimension view. This movie, like its predecessor, also has a rather large building fire. And that fire, not only was it real, but it was filmed on the Universal backlot instead of the real-life building used in the first film. They used oxygen canisters to shoot air at the flames to make them bigger. And Tobey Maguire genuinely did run in and out of that burning building. Now, for any of you lamenting at the fact that I'm not talking about John Dykstra anymore, fear not, John Dykstra fans, because I could tell you that some of his work will be coming back in a later episode in this month of sequel temper. I mean, it's not rocket science. If you go to John Dykstra's Wikipedia page, the movies that I'm talking about are right there on the page. That's a little spoiler for you, but I am going to be returning to John Dykstra a bit later on this month. What I actually also did was I watched the third movie in preparation for this episode after I watched the second one. And it was a really fascinating rewatch, mostly because of how ambitious that third movie is. It really does try to jam everything in, but it also highlights to me how perfectly balanced, as all things should be, Spider-Man 2 actually is because the bloat of Spider-Man 3 just isn't in this movie. And, you know, I have a bit of a backlog of third movies in trilogies to cover. Technically, I should probably do X-Men The Last Stand at some point because I've done the first two. You could also make that argument for Spider-Man 3. And I'm probably going to have a couple more to follow after sequel tender ends. So, you know, if you do want a specific third movie of a trilogy in the future, then let me know. Just something that I briefly want to point on. There is an official novelization for this movie, which does go into some additional detail for plot points that are missing from this movie. So I just want to highlight a couple interesting points, like Mary Jane meeting John Jameson at Moondance, the diner she worked at in the first film. The fact that the police couldn't confirm Uncle Ben's murderer because there were no eyewitnesses. This would obviously be retconned in Spider-Man 3. The fact that Hank Pym is one of the scientists who attends Octavius's demonstration. Otto Octavius escapes the hospital and he steals a trench coat from a mannequin in a nearby store. That the tentacles, when they speak to him, they regard him as a father. This is alluded to in the movie where Doc Ock says he hears their voices inside his head before realising the inhibitor chip was destroyed. The tentacles insist Octavius needs their help and tempt him into villainy throughout the story by suggesting Spider-Man interfered in his experiment because he was jealous. A lot of times people question the bank in this movie. Why are there gold coins in the bank? Well, they are, according to the novelization, 19th century, $20 St. Gowden gold coins recovered from an almost century-old shipwreck. 
and he plans to resell these to fund his experiment. John's proposal to MJ is spontaneous. They are talking at the gala. MJ, reeling from her conversation with Peter, abruptly says that John can propose to her if he wants, and so he does, and then decides to announce their engagement. Mary Jane later confesses to her colleague Louise that she's marrying John, partly to prove something to her father, but also to show Peter what he missed out on. This was restored in the extended cut of the movie. MJ also secretly doubts if she's ready for her and John's relationship to be real and basically isn't invested in the details of their wedding. J. Jonah Jameson being stressed about his son's shotgun wedding and questioning MJ's motives. There's even this suggestion that MJ might be pregnant. But ultimately, John Jameson isn't that bothered when MJ leaves him at the altar because he kind of expects that she's going to. Doc Ock knew that Peter and Mary Jane would be at the cafe because his tentacles tapped Peter's phone lines. The dead end at the end of the train tracks is because the city is building an overpass above the train yard but runs out of money. What finally kills Doc Ock is when he drowns his experiment. His experiment superheats the water, which, and this is quite awful, broiling him alive. He also goes blind by staring into the eye of the ball of energy without his protective goggles. The tentacles at this point are still alive and sentient, and they express the sheer terror of the thought of dying, and they desperately beg their quote-unquote father to save them, not realising that he's already dead. How depressing is that? But there's loads and loads of bits from the novelization that kind of add extra layers to this story that, to be honest, the movie actually doesn't really need. We don't need to know why MJ is getting married to John Jameson. It's just the fact that she's getting married to John Jameson. But the novelization does go into additional points and I just wanted to highlight them. Another thing that I want to highlight, though, is the obligatory Keanu reference, which is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And I had a long think about this one because linking Keanu to Marvel projects is probably the hardest thing that I ever have to do on this podcast. But I did realise that Keanu is starring alongside Alfred Molina in DC League of Super Pets because Keanu is the voice of Batman. And Alfred Molina is the voice of Jor-El. So that's a pretty perfect obligatory Keanu reference, I think. We can't talk about this movie without really talking about Danny Elfman's amazing score. But there's a caveat to this. Because while Danny Elfman did officially return for the score, some of the music was reused from the first film. So it turned out that Danny Elfman's score was mostly reworked or replaced by cues written by other artists. So John Debney, who later did the score for Iron Man 2, Deborah Lurie and Christopher Young, among others, meant that a lot of Elfman's work was actually either reused or repurposed. And Danny Elfman was so annoyed with all of this that he refused to come back and score the third movie and didn't work with Sam Raimi again for several years after. The official soundtrack to this movie featured music by Maroon 5, Huberstank and Jimmy Necco featuring Brian May reached the top 40 of both the Australian and US album charts. In June 2004, Vindicated by Dashboard Confessional, the lead song from the movie, peaked at number two on the Billboard Alternative Songs chart and made it into the top 20 of the global and American modern rock chart. The song We Are by Anna Johnson was a huge hit in Europe, reaching the top 10 in almost all of those countries. And to capitalise on the huge success of Spider-Man two years prior, Sony pushed a huge marketing promotion for Spider-Man 2 
with partnerships with Burger King, Dr. Pepper, Kraft Foods, Kellogg's, Embassy Suite Hotels and Major League Baseball, plus license agreements with Lego, Crayola, Leapfrog and Activision. Activision published the video game developed by Treyarch, which had a more realistic physics-based web-slinging system conceived by designer Jamie Fristrom with an open world inspired by Grand Theft Auto 3. This video game in particular got decent reviews too. But the $2.5 million promotional package between Sony and Major League Baseball was set to include Spider-Man 2 emblazoned bases. However, plans were ditched after fans complained. Spider-Man 2 was released on the 30th of June 2004 and immediately hit number one in the US. This was the week after Dodgeball, the same week as The Notebook, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban was still in the top 10 that week, as was Shrek 2. The following week, King Arthur was released, which literally meant nothing to the charts or to Spider-Man. The third week, it fended off Anchorman, which came in at number two. Spider-Man was finally dethroned in its fourth week by iRobot, which is a movie that I'm fascinated with, by the way, and is on the list to do for this podcast. On a budget of $200 million, it would gross $373.6 million in the United States and $450 million elsewhere for a total worldwide gross of $788.6 million. It also broke the first film's opening day record of $39.4 million by taking in $40.4 million in its first day. This was surpassed a year later by Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Spider-Man 2 also broke The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King's record for the highest grossing Wednesday of all time. It held this record for three years until it was topped by Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. I'm not even finished. It also had the biggest 4th of July opening weekend, the highest five-day Wednesday opening, the largest six-day opening record, the highest Monday gross of any film, which it held for a decade until Star Wars The Force Awakens. Spider-Man 2 also took eight days to become the quickest film to hit the $200 million mark, which would be surpassed by The Dark Knight. And critically, Spider-Man 2 holds an approval rating of 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. It received a score of four out of four stars from Roger Ebert, who hailed it as the best superhero movie since Superman and praised it for effortlessly combining extraordinary effects and a human story, keeping its parallel plots alive and flowing. Later, he would rank it as the fourth best movie of 2004. At the 77th Academy Awards, Spider-Man 2 won Best Visual Effects and was nominated for Best Sound Mixing and Best Sound Editing, but lost to Ray and The Incredibles, respectively. The sound and visual effects from the sequel were also nominated for BAFTAs, and it was also nominated for the Orange Film of the Year, which was voted for by the general public. And obviously, there was a sequel I've already mentioned, Spider-Man 3. And as I said, while it's still a bit of a mess, I appreciate what it tried to do. It had huge ambition and it would have been interesting to see where Sam Raimi took the franchise with his mooted fourth movie. And while an episode on Spider-Man 3 isn't really planned yet, I am planning to take a look into the two amazing Spider-Man movies at some point in the very near future. Because again, it's absolutely fascinating that we got two amazing Spider-Man movies even though this was The Amazing Spider-Man, but then it was retitled Spider-Man 2, and now there's Amazing Spider-Man, and now there's Tom Holland's Spider-Man, as well as Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man and Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. But in all honesty, I'm a huge fan of Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. Not so much the movies, but I really like him. 
And so I really want to go into the story of those movies. And basically, why did we never get a third Amazing Spider-Man movie? Well, let's find out in that future episode, shall we? Let's move on to find out what other people think of this film. And I like to ask on Patreon, on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. I'm going to start with the patrons of this podcast because the patrons always have such amazing thoughts. And obviously, thoughts are returning to the podcast after a month or so's break. So this is quite a momentous achievement to have. Not only the calibre of comments, but the number of comments for this particular movie. As I said, I'm going to start with the patrons. I'm going to start with perennial commenter Andy, who was on the podcast on Dogma just recently. And Andy says, Spider-Man 2 joins the ranks of Empire Strikes Back and Batman Returns as a sequel that improves upon their already excellent original. Sam Raimi ramps up his snap zooms, camera spins and all of the other Raimi-ness that he cut his teeth on. To me, the highlight of this film is Alfred Molina's Otto Octavius, who gives us an incredible amount of pathos to what was, on the page, a reasonably one-nosed evil scientist. I was so angry at this film for making me sympathise with him, and I loved every minute of it. And as always, patrons get a little plug on this podcast, so of course I'm going to plug Geek Salad. It is the podcast, the one-stop shop for all of your geeky, nerdy podcast needs. They cover a lot of comic book stuff on the podcast. They've recently done a non-DC, non-Marvel episode of comic book movies that are non-DC and non-Marvel. And it's really fascinating because you forget how many movies are out there that have nothing to do with DC or Marvel. It's genuinely a fantastic episode of a genuinely fantastic podcast. So make sure you listen to Geek Salad. I'll put information in the show notes. We also have a patron comment from Brendan who says, there are a few clearer examples of a filmmaker with obvious passion for the material, taking an already good starting point and expanding upon it to a masterful extent for a second outing than Spider-Man 2. I know the hyper-real 1960s by way of turn of the 21st century New York City vibe isn't for everyone, but it allows Raimi and his cast to zero in on iconic and deliberately stylized versions of characters and events that both play to those familiar with the beats being referenced in the comics as well as being smartly dramatised enough to read clearly to casual viewers. Add to that Raimi taking what worked from Spidey 1's set pieces and turning it to Eleven, codifying the blueprint for superhero action in the modern era, and you have a bona fide classic of the genre and a blockbuster cinema, period. Which is basically what I was trying to say in this episode. But yet again, Brendan has summarised this episode and what I was trying to say pretty darn perfectly. We also have a patron comment from Derek who says, I adore this one. It is the quintessential superhero movie as it puts the two opposing selves of Peter Parker in direct conflict with Spider-Man. Furthermore, this conflict is mirrored in Dr. Octopus, whose scientific self is in direct conflict with his villain self. And a little plug for Derek's podcast. So he hosts The Midnight Myth alongside his wife, Laurel, and they basically look at modern pop culture with a historical, philosophical and mythological lens. It is an absolutely fantastic podcast. They are podcasting a little less than they used to because they have a baby now. Or actually, he's not really so much of a baby anymore. He's, I think he's almost two. But yeah, they do have a small person in their lives. So it is a little bit difficult for them to produce regular weekly content. But the stuff that they do produce is so outstanding that you just simply have to listen to The Midnight Myth. It is genuinely one of the best podcasts out there. Information in the show notes. 
And the final patron comment comes from Zoe, who says, Wow, the best of the original trilogy. Some might say the best live-action Spider-Man of all time. And you know what, Zoe? That is exactly what I would say, because I genuinely do believe this is the best live-action Spider-Man movie of all time. Do I think it's the best Spider-Man movie of all time? Well, no, I don't, because Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse exists. But without Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse in the equation, this is genuinely one of the greatest events of modern cinema for me. I'm going to come to all of this, how I feel about Spider-Man in a bit. But before I go into all of that, I just also need to mention Zoe's podcast. It is Backlog Cinema. It's basically him and his son, Zach. And it's basically him introducing Zach to movies like this, movies that we grew up with, these amazing cinematic experiences and events. You have to introduce movies like this to the young people. (laughs) Because how else will they learn what a good movie is if we don't do that? So anyway, their podcast is Backlook Cinema. I will put some information in the show notes for that podcast. They are a great partnership. It's great to hear a father and son on a podcast talking about movies. So have a listen to Backlook Cinema. We're going to move on to Twitter. We've got so many comments over on Twitter. So we're going to have to really ramp through these. We're going to start with at Harry Met Movies, who said, Great film that stepped it up from the first and proved there was longevity in the genre. At Best Film Ever Pod said, Spider-Man 2 is the only one of the Sam Raimi trilogy that I rate in the slightest, but rate this one I do. It's tightly written with a standout turn by Alfred Molina as supervillain Doc Ock. Toby does the reluctant hero well, and Spider-Man 2 captures Peter's internal struggle to help the community and do the right thing against his desire for a normal life and to protect those he loves. Mix in some fantastic set pieces and Kirsten Dunst's best performance of the trilogy, and Spider-Man 2 is a winner that wouldn't be topped until Tom Holland burst onto the scene. At At Pedestrian said, I'm a little cooler on it than most. I think it was an important stepping stone for modern comic book movies. With the modern MCU, I've had little desire to return to it, even after No Way Home. At Harley Mumford said, One of my favourite superhero movies ever. I was the perfect age for this movie when it came out and remember vividly seeing it in the cinema. I also remember a fantastic PS2 tie-in video game which I spent many hours on pretending to swing around New York like Spidey. At Kevin underscore the critic said, One of the best superhero films ever. It shows how much strain being a superhero would put on your life. However, it also reaffirms why superheroes inspire us by telling a character-driven story that's equal parts romantic, thrilling, funny and thoughtful. At Neil Burt said, I wrote an essay about this film for uni years ago about the use of ancient symbolism for good and evil, i.e. the snakes tempting Doc Ock. The portrayal of Doc Ock here is one for the ages. The tentacle attack scene in the lab is iconic. Also, the train scene and Peter Parker arc is totes emoche. At D.W. Lundberg said, Possibly the greatest superhero movie ever made. Definitely the most empathetic about having the courage to always do the right thing and the toll that it takes if you aren't honest and upfront about it. Raimi's wild tonal swings and whiz-bang action sequences are the closest anyone's come to mimicking a live-action comic book, and MJ's decision at the end to step up and rescue Peter, essentially meeting him halfway, the key to any successful partnership, is hands down the most human moment in any film of this kind. At Diabolical Pod added, That and the moment where the train passengers unanimously vowed to both keep the secret of his identity, 
and to defend him from the terrifying Doc Ock. At Momscast said, Just watched this movie for the first time a few weeks ago, despite having watched Spider-Man 1 and 3 several times each. I easily think Spider-Man 2 is one, if not the best superhero movies ever made. All the characters and their conflicts feel so personal. At MikeB196 said, The best Spider-Man movie comes very close to what made the comics special and the train scene is an amazing action sequence. At Love Matician said, Although some parts may come off as cheesy and dated, it's still one of the best comic book films. Sam Raimi expertly tells a compelling story with fantastic villain performance and action set pieces that still hold up. Gotta respect it as the granddaddy of superhero movies. At The God of Pod said, Spider-Man 2 is probably up there, challenging for the top spot in the greatest comic book movie ever made category. It certainly was number one at the time, then challenged by Nolan's Batmans. At Andy Gaudion 93 said, Belongs on the Mount Rushmore of superhero movies, a perfect blend of comic book earnestness and virtuoso action, aged like a fine wine and one of the best movie tie-in video games of all time. At Andrew Gorge said, Best of the original three, I'm back, my back. At G Reeve 03 said, The best superhero movie that talks about the inspirational yet challenging nature of modern heroes. It has a surprise or two even after all these years and has the most iconic speech of the genre. And at Adventure Sun said, All in all, I enjoyed it. However, his secret identity was exposed to too many people. Which wouldn't happen in the days of like TikTok and Twitter and Instagram. That would be all over social media today. In fact, we see that in Top Holland Spider-Man movies. So while this is a product of its time, most definitely, I do feel like it harkens back to those days where we didn't have to worry about social media. It's glorious. Moving over to Instagram, we have at SP underscore film viewers who said, The best Spider-Man movie until Into the Spider-Verse came along. Which, yeah, I agree with. And at DYWM podcast said, Superman 2 ripoff. Mostly V good, especially the bit with Otto in the hospital and the raindrops montage. No comments over on Facebook, but as always, thank you so much to everyone who took the time to give a comment. There's so many comments in this episode. It's phenomenal. Thank you so much for the return of comments to have so many. Obviously, Spider-Man 2. It's nothing to do with me. It's all for Spider-Man 2. But just genuinely, thank you so much. Love hearing from you guys. Love hearing your thoughts about these movies. So. Please keep it up for this month because there's some great movies coming. But huge thank you to the patrons and to everyone on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook for your comments on Spider-Man 2. If I've not made it clear, which I should have actually made it clear if I haven't, I love this movie. I have loved this movie since the day I saw it and I will continue to love it probably until the day I die. This was the movie that made me fall in love with Spider-Man to see this fallible human character behind the mask. To humanise a hero is a tough thing to do because in the pantheon of superheroes, Peter Parker is already quite human. He struggles more than most because, as this movie plainly puts it, he's just a kid. A kid with the weight of the world on his shoulders. And when you have the weight of the world, you crack. What I love about this movie is these are real world problems, real dramatic conflict. And Peter is just a kid, literally a teenager, and he's dealing with all of this the weight of the responsibility of the gift that he's been given. 
And is it a gift? Is it a blessing or a curse? And this movie really goes into all of these themes of blessings and curses and responsibility. And sometimes you do want the selfish life of just simply being a human being versus being the hero that New York needs you to be. And I just love the fact that this movie takes a fairly simple story and yet elevates it to something that's so grand and something that still continues to resonate 18 years later. It's phenomenal. And Doc Ock, and Alfred Molina especially, remains one of the best comic book villains come to life because he's not a villain. He's a complex, multifaceted human being, just like Peter. He's susceptible to being controlled and coerced into villainy. But unlike Green Goblin, retains some of the heart of the wonderful Alfred Molina, who I love. And while I love Willem Dafoe's dual performance as both Green Goblin and Norman Osborn for the sheer scenery chewing of it, Melina is so subtle and he's clearly showing a man completely terrified of his newfound abilities and unable to control the tentacles that are now connected to him. Some of his shots are literally straight out of a comic book and I love how they frame this character. I've not really mentioned MJ, but this is Kirsten Dunst's best performance in the trilogy. Even if she is just damseled for the most part, this is something I mentioned last episode as well. And it is a low point in this franchise for me to have a character like MJ and an actress like Kirsten Dunst literally reduced to the damsel in distress. But this is something they thankfully don't do with Zendaya, mostly because I don't think Zendaya would stand for it in the newer movies. This movie also does a really impressive thing, both in the way of comic book movies, because remember, they weren't really a thing at the time, but also for movies generally, and that's the depiction of mental health. Things like depression, anxiety, PTSD aren't often shown in stories like this, and if they are, they're explicitly explained, either by a monologue or a trip to the doctor's office. Now, to be fair, there is a doctor's office trip in this movie, but it isn't a doctor diagnosing Peter's PTSD. It's mentioning several symptoms of PTSD and letting the audience realise over time that Peter's loss of his abilities is nothing supernatural. There's no kryptonite here. Peter has been through incredible loss and suffering. He's witnessed the death of his beloved uncle, seen his aunt attacked, been attacked by a man he saw as a mentor and father figure, had to save the life of his one true love, had to step away from that love for her own good. He's lost touch with his friends. He's struggling at college with his job. Spider-Man is being constantly attacked by J. Jonah Jameson. It's really easy to see that he feels at the end of his tether. Now, I'm not a medical professional, so I'm not able to diagnose PTSD or any mental health affliction. However, speaking from my personal experience of anxiety and depression and possibly a small amount of undiagnosed PTSD, I can tell you that these things change how your brain works. And they can change how your body works. They can change you physically. They can give you things like stomach problems, make you suffer from panic attacks. To me, it's perfectly viable that a series of traumatic events happening concurrently and sequentially could very well affect superhero powers. And I love that this movie goes there, but I love it even more that it doesn't feel the need to spell it out. Because if you want to think Peter is losing his powers because he just is, because story, then that's fine. But if you want to dig a little deeper and realise it's all psychosomatic, then that's also fine. But then you can want to dig a little bit deeper if you want to. But however you interpret it, the fact to me, this movie is making it clear that this is a human story and not a superhuman story. 
means that Peter is suffering from a real mental health crisis stemming from his grief and trauma. With great power does come great responsibility, but also the responsibility to take care of yourself so you can be that friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man. And this story in many ways comes full circle in the third movie, where Peter seemingly has everything under control and is feeling great about himself and the demons that can come from pride and celebrity, whilst also under the influence of an alien substance. Sam Raimi has said in an interview with Superhero Hype that he was inspired by an issue of Spider-Man where he gets the flu and is weakened for a brief time and how human Spider-Man appears when he does get the flu. But really, this movie goes a long way to continue to heal a fragile, wounded New York. Still suffering from the aftermath of 9-11, so many civilians came together in those days to help others, so it makes sense that a community would come together for their friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man. Because everyone can be saved by a simple act of kindness. Showing empathy is not a weakness, and using your gifts for good will always bear better fruit than using them for selfish means. Because at the end of the day, even heroes are still human. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Spider-Man 2. And if you do want to get involved and you want to get your comments on the podcast, then you can comment on the thoughts posts. They go up on social media on a Saturday. Leave your comment on those posts and I will read it out. The social media is at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. If you do want to support this podcast without paying a single penny, you can do so. It's super easy. You can tell your friends and family about this podcast or about this episode if they're a huge Spider-Man 2 fan. You can retweet or like posts on social media, as I said, at Verbal Diorama. Or you can leave a ideally five-star rating or review wherever you found this podcast. That would be amazing. I also like to recommend other episodes that I've done in conjunction with this one. And if you have enjoyed this episode on Spider-Man, you might also like going all the way back to one of the very first episodes that I did on this podcast. It is an episode of Pleasantville. It's episode six. And the reason I'm mentioning it is A, it's a great Tobey Maguire performance. It's very underrated. But also, it's a great movie. If you've not seen Pleasantville, it's completely different to this in every possible way. But great Tobey Maguire, great Reese Witherspoon, and a really wonderful story. I don't want to say too much about Pleasantville because I don't want to spoil it. But if you get a chance to watch Pleasantville, please do so. Episode 32, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It is the greatest Spider-Man movie ever made. It is well worth your time if you've not seen it. Please go and see it because if you like this movie or even if you love this movie, you will adore that movie. I guarantee you. Not only is it the best Spider-Man movie ever made, it's also one of the most beautiful animated movies ever made. And please don't let that put you off. A lot of people get put off by animation, but that movie could not be made in live action. So many reasons why. It's a great comparison piece for this movie. And also... Obviously, if you've not listened to episode 155 on Spider-Man, then please do, because I do go into bits that I've gone into in that episode, but that episode is huge, and this episode is huge too, but that one is even bigger with a lot of Spider-Man's history, and basically, how the original Spider-Man movie was made is such a fascinating story of how projects move through the Hollywood machine. It's a genuine miracle that Spider-Man exists. Please listen to that episode. And also give me feedback. Let me know if you think I got my recommendations correct. So next episode, we're going to be continuing on sequel timber, obviously. 
but with another comic book hero. Now, I talked about this hero's first movie back in May. And you may recall, back in the episode that I did recently on Ex Machina with Jack from Sequelizers, we talk about a particular movie with a ridiculously low Rotten Tomatoes score. This is that movie. This is a movie that's shamefully underappreciated by critics. And that movie is Blade 2. Now, Blade 2, for me, is the superior Blade. Not just because it's a Guillermo del Toro movie, but because it genuinely takes the best bits of Blade and adds Guillermo del Toro. And if you're going to do that, you go full out. And he really does. Guillermo del Toro is the master, but we need to look into why and how the critics don't like this movie because I think it's amazing. I absolutely love Blade 2. So let's have a look at the history and legacy of Blade 2 in the next episode, shall we? Now, I mentioned earlier there are ways you can support the show without paying a penny. And honestly, if that's all you do, then that is more than enough for me because times are hard right now, especially here in the UK. The bills are going up. It's horrendous, genuinely horrendous. If you do have a spare bit of cash and you do want to help this podcast grow, then you can do so by signing up to the Patreon. Now, I'm not particularly pushing the Patreon at the moment just because I know it's really hard for everyone. And I know that a couple of patrons are probably going to leave over the next couple of months or so. I know a couple of patrons have already left. And yeah, it's sad. It's always sad when people support you and then they don't support you anymore. But you kind of want to look at it. It's nothing personal. It's their personal decision. It's nothing to do with me personally, but that's just the way of the world. I am, however, incredibly grateful to the people who do continue to support this podcast. Thank you so much. Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian M, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Ian D, Jason, Sonny, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather and Danny. They are the patrons of the sun in the palm of my hand. I do also have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can get in touch with me. You can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also go to verbaldiorama.com and you can also find me at filmstories.co.uk. You can find articles and stuff that I write. And finally, go get them, tiger. Bye. Hey there, classmates. Tune in to Middle Class Film Class every Monday and Wednesday for weekly movie news, streaming picks, and one deep dive review. The Batman trailer. There was a teaser. There was a trailer. Trailer one, trailer two. Final trailer? I don't know if it's the same one. How many trailers do we need exactly? Leave an email or a voicemail to join in the discussion. Bullshit artist! Uh, <laughs> yeah, buddy! All right. awesome. You're going full Danzig. Right, I am. My, my trans- you have no power over me. me. <laughs> <laughs>